Some of the topics discussed on Blackbird and Advocacy Podcast are difficult to hear. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to episode six of Blackbird and Advocacy Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and with me is my co-host, Dan. What's up, y'all? You Southern now? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. April is uh, Sexual Assault Awareness Month, so the remainder of our episodes for the month will provide information and cases about this topic. This is the last one for April, so this is going to be more of like an informative um, episode rather than bringing um, an actual case forward. So I hope that everybody enjoys the information that we're going to be bringing to you today. Uh, First and foremost, before we get into anything, I do want to apologize. I misspoke a couple of episodes ago in one of the statistics that I reported. So every 73 seconds, an American is sexually assaulted. I had mentioned it was every 37 seconds, and that is incorrect. I transposed the numbers. Sorry. Uh, Though, you know, roughly 35 second difference is really not that much. You know, people are still right. getting sexually assaulted. Still, still kind of a big deal. Very often. Yeah, exactly. So um, everyone understands just how frequent the 73 seconds is. Throughout this episode, at every 73 second mark, we will be placing a low notification sound uh, to identify this statistic in real time. It's important to understand how often this occurs because we really don't think about it in uh, our everyday lives. And unfortunately, it is a reality. You know, we don't really think consciously like, oh, somebody's probably getting sexually assaulted right now. Right. So I I think that it's important for us to kind of bring that to the forefront and just make people aware that it is happening as often as every 73 seconds. Right. Just in the time that it takes for one of us to tell you about something, someone somewhere in the world has been sexually assaulted. Right. Today's episode is going to be much more informative, as I mentioned, than most of our episodes. Today we're going to discuss the physiological and neurological effects that happen to the mind and body during a sexual assault. A lot of people feel ashamed to speak up about being sexually assaulted because they think they did something wrong during their attack. Everyone needs to know that what happens during sexual assault is not at all the survivor's fault. Nothing about the assault is the survivor's fault. It also perpetuates rape culture when people believe if someone quote-unquote enjoyed the act, they must have wanted it and therefore did not get raped. And it also perpetuates rape culture when people believe if someone did not fight off their attacker, they wanted it and therefore it is not rape. If there is no consent, it is rape. I will be repeating this many times throughout this episode. Understand no one deserves to be sexually assaulted and no one wants to be sexually assaulted. Consent is necessary, not anything else. So we've all heard of the fight or flight response, right? Right. I think we've been told about this our entire lives. When in a traumatic situation, the brain tells you to either fight it off or run away from the event. But there are two other neurological responses to trauma that people may not be aware of. There's the freeze response 
and what is known now as the Fon response. These are the four Fs. When we are in a threatening situation, the part of the brain called the amygdala is aware of this. And this is the area most responsible for feeling emotions, including fear. It recognizes a threat is near and signals the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus then sends signals to the pituitary and the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis kicks in. There is then a hormonal flood in the body. Catecholamines, hormones secreted by the adrenals during a traumatic event, become extremely elevated during an assault. Unfortunately, while these are great for the fight or flight response mechanism, they interfere with the parts of our brain that control rational thought. Parts of the prefrontal cortex do not work at their optimal levels when catecholamine levels are too high. The prefrontal cortex is the center for cognitive behavior and decision-making. So normally, someone can think rationally in a non-traumatic situation. However, in a traumatic situation, such as a sexual assault, when the brain is trying to GTFO, the brain cannot think rationally. This is an impulse and reflex of our brains, and we cannot control it. It is the brain's way of protecting us from the threat. Do you have any take on that? Yeah, no, I just I just concur. It's it's the job of the sympathetic nervous system to to turn on these functions to aid you in running away from a saber-toothed tiger. Right. Instead of, you know, or whatever it may have been 200,000 years ago mm -hmm. that was trying to eat humans. Um, so yeah, it, it diverts its resources to the parts of your body that are responsible for you not getting eaten. Um, it, it innervates your uh, SA node, which controls your heart contractility and, and um, cardiac rate. Um, it stimulates um, your alveoli line, your lungs. It stimulates your skeletal muscles mm -hmm. to um, transport more glucose and to generate more action potentials. And it takes that energy away from certain other things like GI motility. Because if you're trying to run away from something, you're not really worried about digesting exactly. that, uh, that buzzard sandwich that you ate. You're really just trying to get the F, like you said. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And yeah, this is an ev evolutionary trait that we've had right. since the beginning of man. Yeah, I mean, evolution works by just... Evolution is just the process of the people that were good at surviving, surviving and making more people. Right. So, yeah, the people whose bodies naturally underwent these processes were the ones who got eaten by fewer saber-toothed tigers, and they made more people who were good at not getting eaten by saber-toothed tigers. Exactly, exactly. And now, obviously, we don't have to worry about being eaten by saber-toothed tigers, but we have to still worry about threats, including... Sure. Other human Sexual beings. Sexual assault, exactly. Right. Exactly. There's, uh, human beings are the greatest threat on Earth, whether it's to the environment or whether it's to seals or anthills or other human or, beings. Exactly. And the Earth itself. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So we have trained ourselves through time to understand how to evade a, an attack, whether that be running away from it or trying to fight off our attacker. Stabbing it with your spear. Right, yeah. Throwing a rock at it, hitting it with a club. Exactly. Whatever. But whichever one our brain is going to do is not really, it's not up to us. 
No, we don't, not really. We, we don't not know really. what's going to happen until we're in that situation. Right. We could actually try to fight it off, or we could try to run away, or we could do these other two things, freezing or fawning. Right. And and either way, like you said, the, the important thing is that even if it's even if you make the decision whether to run from the saber-toothed tiger or to fight the saber-toothed tiger, tooth tiger, that decision is made at, a, at an extremely low level. It's not a high-level process. You're not thinking about, well, how big is the tiger? How sharp are his teeth? Did I sleep well last night? Does the tiger look like it slept well last night? These yeah. are all important things in the high-level thought process of deciding whether or not you're going to engage a threat. Right. None of these things go through your brain when the tiger just leaps through the, the entrance of your cave. Correct. Rational thought Rational thought leaps. is out the window. It's, that it's stops. Correct. <sighs> exactly. Exactly. So your brain's four options are fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And there are some others, but they usually fall into these four categories in some way anyway. So these are the main four. So to fight, as I'm sure we understand, is to attempt to fend off the attacker. Kick, punch, bite, throw things, scream, all of these responses when your brain wants to fight back. To be in flight mode means to attempt to leave the situation. This is extremely difficult if physical force is utilized by the attacker or if chemical inhibitors are used. So if somebody's drugged, they can't leave. Yeah, and the flight response worked a lot better in our ancestors because, you know, I joked about them being in caves, but for the most part, human ancestors were either in grasslands or in the trees, you know, before they were the homo genus, when they were the anthropomorphous genus and the, and the paranthropus genus, they were in the trees a lot. So flight was a lot easier for them. The thing today that makes the flight response so difficult is that we all lock ourselves in little boxes. Yes. You know, if I had to fly from this room, I'd have to go around a bunch of corners right. and down some stairs and around some more corners. And we always see in movies that if somebody's downstairs and the attacker comes in, up. they always go up. They always go up. <laughs> and that it's the wrong decision. <laughs> and, may and maybe that's an evolutionary trait from when we did seek to go to uh, higher level in the trees because saber two yes. tigers, yeah. just so you know, can't climb trees. Yes. Right, exactly. So, may, right, maybe evolutionarily our brains are telling go us, up. go up. Up is safe. But in reality... Unfortunately, in today's society... If you can think rationally in that moment, <laughs> do not go up. Right. Go out. Right. Outside is your best option. Yes. If you can run, if you can flee. Yeah. Um, so, if you're in the flight mode, try to get out of the box you're in. Yep. Again, though, not everybody's going to be in that mode, and again, right. not everybody's going to be even thinking rationally while they're in that mode. Exactly correct. So, exactly you know, correct. if you can't do that, that's okay. We're, we're not telling you that these are the things you have to do, because everybody's brain is going to process this completely differently. Um, so don't think that we're trying to tell you what you should or should not do. Just try to think about all your options and then if you ever are in a situation like this what options you may have if your brain is going in that way that's all we're saying right and and yeah i mean you know for the most part like we were saying you can't control 
what that primary reaction of your brain is going to be. That's that's the sympathetic nervous system that just happens on its own. Right. Um, and you know, also you have your parasympathetic nervous system, which just happens on its own. It's not a high level process. It's a low level process. But like Sarah was saying, the more you train yourself. And the more you drill this information into your brain, the more available it is for even that low-level thought process. I mean, that's the way that militaries have been working since the Roman Empire, yeah. you know, the Carthaginians maybe, you know, uh, the idea is that these this fight-or-flight response happens in response to an unpredicted stimulus. So this happens when, like I said, that you know, you're just chilling cooking your buzzard meat over your fire in your cave and the saber-toothed tiger busts in. You weren't ready for that. Yeah. So that's when this reaction occurs. So the more you just drill these things into your brain, the more likely they are going to be available for your brain to use during this low-level response. Right, and I'm glad you said the availability of them. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to right. happen that right. way, but they're there. They're in the back of your mind. Right. So and maybe you could bring them to the forefront. Again, it doesn't mean you're definitely going to, and it doesn't mean that you have to, but at least it's there available for you in case that's the response. Right, and that's why I, d I was talking about training. It, it's, it's the, you know, drilling these things into your brain, because the first time that you hear us talk about um, looking around your little box for ways out, the first time you, you think about this after listening to that podcast, that doesn't mean that automatically you're going to know, oh yeah, I leave that window unlocked, so I'm going to go out that window. Right. So when something does happen, you're not going to remember that. You're going to have to practice that and practice that and practice that. It's just like either being in some kind of military or being some kind of athlete. Mm -hmm. You drill throwing to, you know, throwing to the the deep pocket in the end zone. You track you you throw that a thousand times, 10,000 times, 100,000 times right. just so that when you're looking for an open receiver. You're, that's not a high-level process. You're, you're, you're looking, you're looking, you're looking. All of a sudden, you see a guy open in zone, and you just throw. Right. If you have to think about it, that's a much, much slower response in the human brain. And so you may get tackled in that in mm -hmm. that 100 milliseconds. Mm -hmm. But if you just have that drilled in, you just make that throw, and the receiver gets it, and you get the points. And it's the same thing with training in the military or training for your own personal survival. You've got to drill these things into yourself constantly so that they are available for that low-level thought process. But most people don't do that. I mean, right now, I don't know what I would do if something happened from this doorway. Right. If something happened in that window. Right. If something came through the ceiling right now. I, I haven't pre-planned what I'm going to do, so... Well, I mean, think about it. You know, when we're at schools or we're in, like, particular buildings, there's always the fire exit um, map. And, you know, there's always, you know, whatever exit is closest is where you're supposed to leave if there's a fire. But then you always hear about these people trampling each other anyway. Yep. So it really, you know, your your rational thought goes out the window. Exactly. You know where to go. You've you've seen it. You've understood. You've probably walked that just to see where it goes. But then as soon as a traumatic event is actually happening, your your brain is, is just trying to get out of that moment it's not it's right. not thinking logically right yeah the part of your brain that 
you know, if you and your friends are just walking down the hallway in school and thinking about, like, oh, yeah, you know, if you go down this stairway, there's an emergency exit there, the part of your brain that has stored that information is not available. Right. During, during uh, an intense stress response, like in the case of right. a, an assault or something like that. Right. So don't, again, don't think that if you have all this training and you've practiced that it necessarily means that every time a traumatic right. event happens, you're going to remember to do all those things that you've trained. Right, it just we increases actually the have, likelihood. It, right, it increases the likelihood. We actually, I'm going to talk about a case um, where a woman, that's exactly what happened. She trained and it, it all went out the window because yeah, I mean, rational the, thought just didn't happen at that moment. Yeah, you know, the probability of that successful outcome is based on two things. Number one, how how often you have drilled that into your brain, into your subconscious. And then number two, just the, you know, the there there's an intrinsic factor for every person where some people are just very calm under pressure. These are the people that do end up joining and doing well in military organizations. And then some people just don't have that intrinsic factor. Right. And, you know, and, and so be it, you know, that's not meant to be a judgment against you. It's just, you need to understand what you've got and what you don't have. And right. if you don't have that ability, that intrinsic factor to stay calm and access that higher level thought, then unfortunately these kinds of scenarios are more likely to end badly for you. Even if you do, you know, quote unquote train for the yeah. situation. And you mentioned before predictability and unpredictability, and it actually reminds me of uh, the Unagi episode of Friends. You know, the girls, uh, Phoebe and, uh, and Rachel, go to self-defense class, and that's a predictable environment. Yeah. You, you, when you go to self-defense class, and by all means, go to self-defense class. It's such an important thing to, to know. Um, but they, they go to self-defense class, and the trainer it's in a controlled environment they know what's coming at them so they know how to fight back ross then you know tells them like yeah you know in a predictable environment how to fight back but what about when it's unpredictable what about when i jump out at you and i mean the girls end up attacking him anyway because you know danger <laughs> exactly but it's one of those things where, you know, it's not only just practicing in a predictable environment, you have to practice in unpredictable unpredictable environments, but how often do you have the opportunity to practice in unpredictable environments? Right, and I mean, that's kind of an oxymoron to say practice yes. and unpredictable. unpredictable. You know, and exactly. as someone who was a competitive martial artist and a competitive athlete, you know, I, I know that no matter how much you train, yeah, you can't you can't train for the unpredictable. Right. That's kind of buried in the definition of the word unpredictable. Is you didn't predict it. Right. You weren't ready for it. Exactly. So the flight response is just a response to the threat. Uh, no one knows whether this is the mechanism that will work for them unless they are put into that situation. And hopefully some of us never find out which mechanism works for us. So the other two are freeze and fawn. So to freeze, and I think this is the one that most survivors blame themselves for the most, is to tense up and not be able to do anything. The brain is signaling that this situation is immensely traumatic and it is trying to not pull in the pieces that will affect the survivor forever. The brain essentially shuts down. This is known as tonic immobility. And again, it is an automatic response. The survivor does not decide to tense up. 
Behaviors associated with this response are increased breathing, eye closure, and muscular paralysis. And that's the big issue. Yeah. Women constantly think that they didn't move. What's wrong with me? And it's not you not moving. Your brain literally puts your muscles into paralysis. Right. Like I said, there's that intrinsic factor. And, mm-hmm. if, and if that intrinsic factor causes muscle paralysis, you can't do anything. Correct. It doesn't matter how much you've trained. It doesn't matter if you go to self-defense class and you literally kick everyone's butt there. That's a different state of your brain. That's a different state of your nervous system than the one that triggers this intrinsic response to to be paralyzed. Correct. And according to the Arkansas Coalition Against Sexual Assault, approximately 12 to 50% of rape victims experience tonic immobility during a sexual assault. And I actually experienced tonic immobility during a uh, during a night terror when I was young. Wow. Um essentially it was sleep paralysis um i never had it again so i don't really know 100 percent if it was sleep paralysis or if it was just this tonic immobility but i was having a nightmare and i woke up out of it and couldn't move and couldn't and i felt myself screaming in the dream and woke up with my mouth open as if i was screaming but nothing was coming out that's crazy but it it happened so quickly, yeah. and so I, that's why I don't necessarily think it was sleep paralysis because it wasn't a prolonged effect. It right. really was just the that end result. But um, it's it's a really uncomfortable situation to be in. Yeah, to I, to try you're 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 thinking in your head like I want to do this thing, but yeah. your body is not listening to that. Yeah, I've, I've had sleep paralysis a couple times in my life. Very, very short term. Where yeah. literally I just, I'm just, I just wake up normally, but I can't move. Yeah. And it only lasts a couple seconds, but literally I know I'm awake. I know I'm not dreaming. I can look around with my eyes, mm-hmm. but my body won't move. Yeah. And yeah, that's pretty much terrifying. It's terrifying. And again, I know I'm, it's not like I'm in a, in a nightmare. I know I'm awake. I know mm-hmm. I'm safe. Mm-hmm. But just the idea that like hey, my muscles aren't answering the requests from my brain, that's messed up. And luckily, it's only happened for me a couple times, and it's only been, like, a few seconds. I can't imagine what that must be like for someone who has the actual condition where that happens, A, frequently, B, for long durations, and C, especially if these people live alone. Yes, yeah. I mean, Mm. sleep paralysis and and tonic immobility, just they happen very often. And I think they happen more often than people like to talk about. So it's a good thing that we are discussing it because it, it's, you know, people need to understand that it, it, this is not an isolated thing. People right. people go through this daily. It happens and it's okay. Yes. Not that it's a great thing, but you shouldn't feel like you're weak for it. No. And, and part of the reason that, like you said, you know, the idea of tonic immobility during a sexual assault mm-hmm. goes unreported is because people don't want to talk about it because we, especially in white people culture, have this this philosophy that only the strong survive, yeah. you know, because our ancestors were warriors and raiders and we took things from people and that's how we survived, mm-hmm. um, you know. And so we still perpetuate this idea that if you can't pick up an axe, you're weak. Right. 
well, some people literally cannot pick up that axe. Right. You know, and you see this sometimes in fiction representations of, like, battles, where you'll see, like, the young guy who he's been training with his father or his uncle or his older siblings or whatever, and, you know, in, in, in the training he does okay, his form is sloppy or whatever, but he hits the dummy. But then he gets into the battle and he cannot bring himself to swing that axe against people because this is now yes. that unpredictable environment. Even though he's trained so much on dummies, he's never buried his axe into another human being. Right. And for most of those warriors, they just they just had it because they were evolutionarily designed to have that intrinsic factor to be okay with that. But every now and then you get a person, even out of a, a warrior culture, who can't do it. Right. And so even right there, you can see that there are some people who just can't do it. Right. And now when you step back into the real world, the modern world, where 95% of people don't ever have to engage in any kind of combat. And most people, you know, the, the craziest shock that they'll receive is if they get to work and they get laid off. And like, that sucks, don't get me wrong. But that's a far cry from an axe swinging at you or being sexually assaulted right. on your way just to Au Bon Pain to get a, a croissant. Exactly. Like yes, exactly. So most of us ha have no idea what we're going to do in a scenario like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and to be honest, our brains don't know until it happens. It's exactly correct. Yeah. So the fourth F which I don't know if many people know about, is the fawn response. Have you heard of the fawn response? Not until you explained it to me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so this response is when the brain of the person enduring the attack goes along with it in hopes it will not add any more torture. So again, this is a natural response of the brain, and it is attempting to protect the survivor. The fawn response does not mean you're enjoying it or giving consent to allow it to happen. It just means your brain is trying to not let anything more happen to you and to get the hell out of the situation as quickly as possible. So the fawn response is essentially if you are being sexually assaulted, you're laying there and it's not tonically mobility. You can move, you can scream, but you, your brain is like, nope, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to lay here. I'm going to have this happen because if I scream, maybe this person is going to kill me. Right. If I try to run, maybe this person's going to try to kill me. So your body is just like, nope, right. I'm, I'm just endure this for the time and it'll be over and you'll be safe. Yeah. It, That's it, the fawn response. Yeah. I can imagine it being much like if you're wasted, if you're, if you're really shit face drunk um, and I come up to you and I, and I start pushing you, you obviously don't want me to push you. Right. But you're not gonna freeze. You're gonna you're gonna you're gonna want to resist me, but not really be able to. And I would imagine that this one response is kind of the same thing. Your body is just saying to your conscious mind, "Hey, don't worry about it. Just just get through it. Yeah. It's gonna be okay." Yes. Just like you know, if I know I'm hammered, and one of my friends is being a jerk, and I'm so hammered that I can barely even move, I'm just like, "Whatever, bro." And I'm just gonna chill there, and and. Let him, you know, draw the penis on my forehead right, or whatever. Right, like, well, yeah. come on. Yeah. Come on. You yeah. know I can't stop you. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and again, it's not a response of you wanting this to happen. Right. You right. don't it's at just... all want it. It's just your your brain and your body are saying, let's get through this. Right. And you'll be safe on the other side. 
because there are a lot of times where um, survivors, you know, are being attacked at knife point. So they're thinking, okay, as long as I go along with this person right now, he won't stab me. He won't slit my throat. He won't, you know, you, you, your brain is just like, get through it. Right. Get through it's, it. It's, it's kind of the same thing as, you know, if you get mugged and let's say that you're a guy or, or you're a woman who, either way, you're trained, you're actually trained, you're a competitive fighter or whatever it may be. But somebody pulls out a knife or a gun to mug you. Yeah. The smart thing to do is just give them your damn wallet. Yeah. And most of the, well, some people would would actually recommend that. Especially people like in the special operations community, people former military. These are the kind of people that will put their ego aside and be like, oh, I know I could destroy this guy in a fair fight. Yeah. But this is far from a fair fight. So these are the kind of people that will tell you if you, you know... If you go to work and you're like, oh, yeah, you know, one of my friends got mugged and he handed over his wallet. What a what a baby, right? That's the kind of person that will say, no, your friend did the right thing. Right. And you would be like, what? You, of all people, would recommend that I that he, my friend just give give this guy his wallet? Well, yeah, I would recommend that he give him his wallet. Because right. you said you said your, the, the guy that was mugging your friend had a knife or had a gun. And he was hanging there with, with his kids or with his wife or with his grandma or something like that. He's got responsibilities. And what is it? His wallet is worth 20, 30 bucks. Maybe he's got 50 bucks in cash in there. He's going to have to cancel his credit cards. He's going to have to call the DMV to replace his license. All right, so be it. It's better than him getting stabbed or or, exactly. or her, this could be a woman that we're talking, or her spouse getting stabbed or her kids getting stabbed. The best thing to do is just hand the freaking wallet over. Right, right. You know? And that's somebody who's thinking rationally in that moment. So again, this is not necessarily a rational right. thought process. This is just your body going, nope, the, let's get through is, it. But this is your body having basically that thought process. Yes. Your body is saying, yeah, you know what? Let's just, yeah, let's let's just, just get through this. This is going to suck. But the thing that's hard to accept for a lot of people is that sometimes suck just happens. Yes. You know, people, especially us in, in white people culture, you know, this descendants of raiders, Viking raiders and whatever, you know, we always think that we can get the best of a situation. We can always fight our way out of a situation. And it's really difficult for us to accept that that's not true. Correct. There are some times when suck is just going to happen. Yep. You know, if you're in your car and somebody broadsides you, there's nothing you can do about that. Yep. It's just going to happen. Yep. The best thing that you can do is try to get out of the car, make sure everybody's safe, and resolve the situation. Don't get out and start yelling at the guy like you're gonna like you punching him in the face is gonna make the accident unhappen. Okay. So yeah, I mean, you know, your body in in that full response is just saying this is gonna suck. Let's just get it over. Let's just get it over with. Let's not make it worse. Let's not potentially end in right. death. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know? and, and again, this is a low-level thought process. Yeah. So, so it's not you're not even considering the practical outcome. No. This is just your body's response yeah. to say, let's just get through it. Yeah, exactly. So those are the neurological effects during a sexual assault. So now we're going to move on to the physiological effects. And, you know, the physiological effects, I think, sometimes are worse on... Uh, a survivor, um, I think that they feel ashamed more so because of things that are happening to their bodies during a sexual assault, um, more so than the neurological um, effects that are happening during the sexual assault. And we're not talking about long-term trauma. 
Um, that's going to be a completely different episode. We're talking about literally while you're in the attack, while it's happening at that moment. So something that happens to the body during a sexual assault that is hardly ever discussed is self-lubrication. In a 2004 paper in the Journal of Clinical Forensic Medicine written by Roy Levin and Willie Van Berlow, super cool names, the authors gathered information from doctors, nurses, and therapists who work with sexual assault survivors. They found that victims report evidence of physical arousal in as many as 21% of rape cases, even when they also report violence and high levels of fear and mental distress. It is commonly accepted that female genital self-lubrication means pleasure and therefore is a mark of consent. This is completely incorrect. The body produces this as a defense mechanism of sorts. Martin La Lumiere, which reminds me of... The candle. Yep, from Beauty and the Beast. Um, A professor from University of Ottawa's School of Psychology says that genital reactions during an assault are physical, reflexive responses, which are actually the body's way of minimizing injury, such as tearing and pain. So again, evolutionarily, this happens... So that we don't get injured. Sure. According to Cosmopolitan, La Lumiere says, quote, genital responses can occur in the presence of any sexual cue. In our research, we find that women, but not men, show responses even to sexual cues that they find very aversive, like descriptions of rape. La Lumiere and scientist Kelly Sushinsky performed a study in 2011 to discover why exactly this happens. They found that, quote, substantial ethnographic, historical, and comparative evidence suggests that the threat of unwanted sexual activity has been considerable over human evolutionary history. Yep. La Lumiere further explains, quote, the automatic response to any sexual cue serves to protect women against injuries. It is worth noting that even consensual intercourse can produce small injuries to the genitals, so a protective mechanism involving lubrication and likely other responses would be quite useful. So in other words, our bodies have evolved to ensure we are safe when engaging in sexual activity. This goes for both consensual and non-consensual sex, which is sexual assault. Our bodies are protecting us from harm. And La Lumiere explains that, you know, evolutionarily speaking, women have been getting raped for thousands of years. Yeah. So our bodies have responded to this by saying, we're going to protect a very sensitive area from injury because we have to endure childbirth later. So we want to make sure that that is in the optimal position to be able to birth a child. Um, You know, there are places in the world that are doing, you know, genital mutilation on women and it's extremely harmful to not only that area of the body, but the body as a whole. Sure. You know, you can cause infection, you can get sepsis, you can die. 
Yeah, I mean, there are there are uh, fluids that are involved in that part of a woman's body that are supposed to stay exactly where they are. Right. Um, you know, endometriosis, for example, as, as, as you know, you know, people who are afflicted with this, is it's caused by a fluid that's supposed to be in one particular part of the of the reproductive system of a female's body going out of that part and getting into the lining of the uterus mm. um, e exiting the ovaries and that causes massive inflammation because the part of the body that that fluid is supposed to be in is supposed to be ejected and cleaned mm -hmm. and these other parts like the uterine lining are not cleaned so the so the fluids right. gather there and cause all kinds of nasty effects just by virtue of, of being there. Right. Um, and then what's worse is they can get into the bloodstream and then distribute throughout the body going as far as the brain. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, like you were saying, you, you think like, oh, you know, I'm some completely piece of garbage warlord and I'm going to I'm going to cut this woman down there so that she can't have kids. Well, you could be giving her, you know, all kinds of other horrible things. Yes. You know? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, again, you know, this is this is really something that um, our bodies are just responding to the trauma of the situation. It's not that anybody's enjoying the encounter, the attack. So, you know, to, to think that women are not coming forward because they're ashamed that this happened... And people are, are, are victim-blaming them yeah. because, oh, well, if if you had lubrication, that means that you were enjoying it. And it, that doesn't at all mean you were enjoying it. It didn't mean that you were giving consent. It meant that your body was protecting you. Right. And, and that, that visceral response to a woman coming forward and saying that she was assaulted, I think, is a derivative of our, pure, our nonsense puritanical ideals that we had once upon a time where we were so conservative and so against any form of like happiness in life whatsoever <laughs> yes. because happiness wasn't service to the whatever yeah um that you know the idea was you automatically assumed that if a woman was sexually assaulted that she must just be some jezebel and she must yes. have been out there doing it on purpose and she has some devious means behind her whereas i would tend to think that even if there are are some fraction of women who that's what they're into and that's cool whatever so be it i would imagine that 99 percent of people like we talked about in another episode that 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 um suggest that they were sexually assaulted were probably actually sexually assaulted yes it, yes <laughs> you know i i find it very hard to believe that like oh yeah most of those girls who are complaining about this they're running some kind of scam like what no come on think no. about that for a minute you know it, 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 this this just happened in the Harvey Weinstein case. Um, he had sexually assaulted multiple women. And his attorney brought up the defense that these women were in consensual relationships with him. Multiple women were in consensual relationships with this one man. And then they claimed they were all sexually assaulted by him. Right. In the same way and they had never met each other they didn't corroborate stories with one another right like just They're... think about the odds of that exactly don't just put the politics aside from it just think about the odds exactly that, that event occurs exactly exactly so you know to say that a woman who is coming forward with the most traumatic experience of her life 
is lying. Right. It's disgusting. And to think that it happens, like, again, let's let's assume that that happens in an isolated environment. There is some practical chance of that happening. The fact that, you know, you have to take that, that probability and then multiply it multiple times for six women or ten women or whatever it is. Yeah. You know, it, it, even if you start with a 20% chance, by yeah. the time you've multiplied that by six occurrences, yeah. you're at, like, a unitary percent. You're it's at, like, same, one or two percent The or same whatever. thing with like, the Bill Cosby case. Yeah, all agreed, of these women agreed. had the exact same story. How did they all have the same story if it didn't happen? Right. Right. If there's one accusation, then maybe you have to give the person the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, maybe this is worth looking into. But like six people, ten people, mm-hmm. come on. Just, exactly. just think about this logically for a minute. Exactly. So furthermore, feelings of arousal and even orgasm can occur during a sexual assault. And again, this does not mean consent. The connection between the brain and the body goes beyond fight or flight and can also lead to arousal. It is sometimes considered a reflex that when someone is in this state, while their brain is expressing not wanting the situation to occur, it is possible for the body itself to feel arousal. This is also a natural state of the body. And for male survivors, this can occur as well. Erection and ejaculation are common because, again, that physical arousal state is happening. The blood is pumping because of that adrenaline and the flow goes to the penis. Not at all abnormal and not at all meaning consent. So we have a a survivor story here um, that I mentioned a little bit earlier. So in 2005, Jenny Lee Corvo was sexually assaulted. She explains the emotional roller coaster she went on during and after the ordeal in her 2018 article, why I froze and smiled during my sexual assault, recounting her body's response. In earlier years, Jenny learned self-defense from a police trainee friend and felt she was sure and ready to defend herself if an attack were to happen. She also explains that a former therapist had taught her to repeat 911 so she would not forget to make that call in an emergency. However, in 2005, She was sexually assaulted and did not use any of the tactics she had learned to fend her attacker off. Instead, she froze. She writes in her article, quote, Understanding how the brain responds to emotional stimuli like fear would have saved me over a decade of guilt and anxiety. She blamed herself for a long while after her assault and did not understand why her training and knowledge of self-defense let her down. Jenny believed the only two responses to a situation such as hers would have been fight or flight, as that is what is taught to everyone growing up. She did not understand why she didn't fight back, why she didn't scream, why she even paid the man. He was a hairstylist cutting her hair when the assault took place. Why she even thanked him. She fully blamed herself. Thankfully, she listened to part of herself that wanted justice for what had happened. She called a local sexual assault hotline and explained what had happened. And now this part really makes me angry as an advocate myself. The hotline advocate told Jenny, quote, There's nothing you can do. There were no witnesses and you have no evidence. You could file a police report but they won't do anything about it except ask for his side of the story. They have no reason to believe you. That's a, that's 
<clears throat> incredibly unprofessional. Yeah. What a crap thing to say. Like, even even if you genuinely believe that, let's say you live in some small town and you know things like this happen and you know no one ever gets justice there. You don't say that in a professional capacity. You do your job. As an advocate, you're supposed to be advocating right. for the survivor. You're not supposed to be telling right. them, don't do it because nothing's going to happen. Right. That's not advocating for them. Right. That's not going to bat for them. Right. <sighs> so Jenny wrote this article to let other survivors know it is not their fault and to better understand the other outcomes of trauma during a fearful event such as assault. So hopefully less people will blame themselves. And uh, we're going to link the article in the show notes. There is so much self-blame surrounding these aspects of sexual assault, yet I think if people knew just how much of this we cannot control, they may be a little easier on themselves. Why didn't I fight back? Why didn't I scream? You couldn't. Your brain wanted to shelter you in the best way it knows how. A lot of survivors believe their bodies betrayed them, and that could not be farther from the truth. Your bodies protected you from further trauma and harm. While I know a lot of survivors deal with PTSD due to the assault they endured, the responses their brains and bodies were providing during the assault were saving them from even worse thoughts and emotions. It is also why a lot of survivors cannot remember some pieces of their attack. The brain does not want you to remember. In order to stop blaming yourselves or blaming survivors in general, we need to understand no one asked for this to happen. The brain and body naturally respond when and how they deem fit. If you or someone you know has been a victim or survivor of sexual assault, reach out for help at rain.org, R-A-I-N-N.org, or call 1-800-656-HOPE-4673. And that concludes episode six of Blackbird. If you have a story you would like to share on Blackbird, please email us at blackbirdadvocacy at gmail.com. And don't forget to stop by and follow us on Instagram at Blackbird Advocacy. And please give us five star reviews. Sounds good. Yeah. For all references used in this episode, please see the show notes. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you will also subscribe to our podcast if you have not already. Be safe. Be aware of your surroundings. And continue to social distance if you can. Stay inside. Hug a pup. Flatten the curve. Thank you.